Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey guys, Mark Kenyon here coming to you from the field. Got a quick update for you. This is going to be a Tony episode of the podcast and I'm sure he's going to tell you that I'm at, I don't know, like a Miley Cyrus concert or something, but it's not the case. I'm outside doing cool stuff, but I want to quickly give you an update on two things. Number one, there is a sale that I think is worth noting coming up on September 13th. It's the 13th through the 15th, September 2022. If you're listening now for a number of first light items and a couple cool things on the Mediator store, including our Timber Ninja climbing sticks. These are the climbing sticks that I love. The number one stick that I use, been using it for the last two or three seasons. We've even got them now in the Spectre Camel pattern. If you buy three sticks from the Mediator store, you get the fourth one 50% off. And that's a pretty good amount of money because these honestly aren't cheap sticks, but they are top, top notch. So if you want to check that out, if you want to check out the saddle I'm using or any of my first light gear picks for mid-season, I've got my whole kit listed out on my gear picks page. That is store.themeateater.com slash mark. So store.themeateater.com slash mark. You're going to see my gear recommendations for first light stuff in October. You're going to see the Timber Ninja sticks I'm mentioning and a few other things too. So check all that out. That's update number one. Update number two, and thank you for bearing with me here. Update number two is that my brand new whitetail show, Deer Country, has launched the first episode is live now on the meat eater youtube channel it's all about that urban deer hunt i went on in washington dc and everything i learned about urban deer hunting from taylor chamberlain hopefully you heard that podcast episode back in i don't know november or december last year discussing this now you can finally watch it so please head on over to the meat eater youtube channel check out episode one i'm proud of the story we told some of the tough lessons i learned along the way and i hope you enjoy it as well so that is it for me enjoy this episode with tony i'm out 
Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm speaking to Mike Stroff, who owns Southern Outdoor Experience and is the host of Savage Outdoors TV. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You have probably noticed that this is not the voice of Mark Kenyon. Mark and Spencer are off filming a project together, which you probably think is about hunting, but you're wrong. According to Mark's text, it's a historical thriller that is part time travel sci-fi and part kung fu movie. So I guess there's a lot of moving parts there, but I'm sure it'll be a riveting film when it's all said and done. Until then, I'll just keep this train moving down the tracks and keep this Rabbits with Antlers month alive and well. Now, last week, I kicked it off with Andy May, but this week I'm taking a sharp turn into new territory with Mike Stroff. Mike owns and operates several whitetail hunting outfits where he and his guides have to put a wide variety of clients on deer in Texas and Illinois and Iowa and South Dakota. He discusses the challenges of having new hunters in each week, and now he has to try to preserve deer movement while dealing with clients of various physical abilities, uh, you know, hunting patients, and just overall whitetail hunting experience. Even if you never, ever, ever plan on going on an outfitted hunt, this episode has a lot to offer you because few people have the kind of experience that Stroff does with whitetail deer in so many different places. I hope you enjoy it because I really had a lot of fun talking with him. Mike Stroff, thanks for coming on the podcast, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. You you look a little tired. Yeah, we're up here in Illinois hanging tree stands, uh, checking stands, replacing straps, trimming, mowing food plots and trails, and got to Yeah, this is our last trip up here to be able to get everything done before we start our fall craziness. Because I just don't have any more time in the schedule to get up here, so we're kind of here till we're done. And just just for frame of reference, how many tree stands are you guys setting up there on that farm? Uh, we've got about 160, I guess, that we've got set. Um, you know, it's a big farm. It's the largest privately owned contiguous track in the state of Illinois. So it's it's a big place. And, you know, it's it's small woodlots. So you, you, you hunt the pinch points and all these little travel corridors. So you got to have multiple stands in a lot of them because of the way the wind, you know, so you can hunt all the winds. You know, if you got a deer that's in a certain area, you got to get in there with them. But you know, we, we may not have the luxury, especially guiding or, or having guests or clients come where you, know, you, you can't wait till next week when the wind gets right. You got to be able to get in there. So we, we have, there's a lot of duplication, I guess, but it's necessary. Yeah. And that, you know, that's something, you know, we used to hear about a lot is, you know, this was probably like in the nineties, early two thousands, where you'd hear about, you know, if you have a really good spot set up, you know, three stands in there for different winds. So no matter what you can hunt it. And that kind of went away with the mobile movement and, you know, climbing stands and saddles and stuff, but you're in a unique position. And this is why I wanted to get you on. I've known you a long time. I hunted with you down in Texas. I hunted your place out in South Dakota. And I was thinking, you know, like who better to kind of dumb down big bucks than somebody who has the kind of operations that you run you know, not only are you a passionate deer hunter yourself, but you, you have a lot of clients on your, your three different businesses and who are coming in and they, they vary so wildly and you have to just be like, okay, this week, my challenge is, 
you know, two 12 year olds with rifles and a 60 year old with a bow and somebody who's killed a hundred deer and somebody who's killed two. And you've got to think through all this stuff. And so that, that farm you're talking about down in Illinois there, you know, that's, that is a kind of a unique situation you have, but you're saying that you're still putting up 160 tree stands just on that place to yep. make sure that you guys have options. Yeah, it's it's for different options and for different skill sets, like you were talking about. Um, you know, some some locations I wouldn't even entertain with a certain client, not because they necessarily can't make the shot. That's not what I'm talking about. It's more like physically they may not be able to get in that lock on, or hey, they can't cross that creek because they can't get up the steep bank, or or this guy's super fit, he can get in there. But you know, like you said, or I've got a kid, or whatever it may be, because we get all kinds of different clients. Here in Illinois, typically my hunters are pretty serious bow hunters. The guys that want to come to hunt this farm is pretty, you know, it's a pretty prestigious place to, to hunt. And and the guys that call about hunting here are typically pretty diehard bow hunters. So it's a little bit unique compared to what I'm doing in Texas or even what we might be doing in Iowa or South Dakota at times. Um, it, this hunter is a little bit more hardcore i guess so on average but we still get or but did you get that guy that may come with his three buddies that are super hardcore and he's not and you got that fourth guy that's kind of the variable or the third guy in the group whatever he's kind of the odd man out and you still got to be able to accommodate and try your best to get them in the best situation where they have a chance to kill a deer um you know and then we're real picky on what we shoot here so that takes a whole nother element into it you know you got to be able to hunt these areas based on what's in there and you're running over 100 cameras on the place um i don't get a lot of cell service in the bottoms here so i still have to use a lot of sd card cameras um you know and so i've got to have a lot of cameras out and i don't like going in and let you know when i'm in there working or taking somebody in and out hunting you know i've got a reason to be there i'll check them but you know i'm not just roaming around beating the woods down checking cameras you know necessarily either so uh but we're getting all those out right now too so you know my Trucks full of cameras, pole saws, ratchet straps, tree stands. We're kind of multi-tasking you know, right now. Yeah, and you're just looking at that, you know, and in, in for reference, we're recording this in August, even though this is going to drop in September, but you're just like, we got to get this done. We got to get out of there and start collecting some of that data and just let everything kind of season and settle down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I like to try to be done by the end of August. That's you know, by September first is kind of my goal on the place that we have here in Illinois and our place in Iowa is to be done and out of the woods and just let the deer do what they want to do. You know, you start hunting first of October if you if you want to. We don't bring clients in then, but you know, if you were to hunt early, you know, I like to just let the deer have 45, 50 days of nobody really screwing with them other than me checking a camera here and there. And I don't live here either, so I'm doing an absentee. So. Uh, just with my schedule with our TV shows, other outfitting locations and everything we've got to get ready. Um, this is kind of my last hoorah up here. So I got to get it done. Yeah. And it, when, when you give that example of, you know, that Illinois situation is kind of cool because you have people who are, you know, you're not going to have somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, probably show up there or inquire about it, but you still might deal with that. How how do you assess that? Cause I know I've been there you know, down at your Texas place when like eight or 10 people show up and you can see the guides kind of watching everybody shoot and you can kind of, you can sort of see this feeling out process that they're really, you know, they're, they're tactful about, but you know, they're looking at that going, okay, you, you can kind of see them making up their mind about people at the onset. And then every, you know, every morning, every evening, when you get picked up, there's like an assessment of you're like, what did you see? What happened? Did you shoot? You know, and, and it's, it's like a kind of a moving target all the time and it changes by the week. It's gotta be a huge challenge. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, when guys get into camp here, what we like to do is put everybody, not to put them on the spot, but one, to check bows to make sure everybody's good, and also to see who can do what, uh, you know, make sure everybody's gear set up right. Because, you know, like I say, you might have a group of three or four guys, and one guy's just kind of tagging along because he wants to hang out with buddies, and the other guys are hardcore, or somebody has something wrong with their setup. Uh, you know, so we make everybody shoot. We all got to go down. We got a little 3D range in the backyard here. We uh, we kind of walk through and watch everybody sling eight or ten arrows. You know, make sure everything's dialed in. And also, and while you're doing that, we're talking. And hey, we're you know, do you hunt a lot? Where do you hunt? Where are you from? You know, and you just kind of feel the guys out. And I've also done that in our booking process, trying to screen guys a little bit, not to turn people away, but to understand their abilities and what they're looking to try to accomplish when they come too. So I've done a lot of that on the front end. You know, a lot of times I may be expecting someone cause they've been real honest. Hey, I'm coming with my buddy. I'm not a big bow hunter, you know, that kind of deal. And you can also, we've got tree stands set back here on the 3d range where we'll make them get up in the stand to shoot. So we got lifelines and everything all set up just like it's the exact setup. I'm going to put them in. It's either my ladders or my lock-ons and they can get up there. Cause a guy may come from South Carolina and he hunts in climbers all day long and in a pine tree and never been in a lock-on with climbing sticks, you know, cause they don't do that necessarily a lot. Uh, and just to get them comfortable and also watch their comfort level and see what they can and can't do. And a guy may, I've had guys climb up when they're practicing and go, I don't like that. I'd prefer to be in a ladder or, you know, and then, and you're, and at least I know now, instead of putting you in there at five o'clock in the morning in the dark and, you know, at, at daylight, you're like, I don't like this. I want to get out and ruin a good spot. Cause I've had a lot of guys do that too. Uh, you know, so we try to rule all that out on the front end and then, you know, get them set up and, you know, make our plan for the week after that. Well, how, how do you deal with that? Cause that, that's one thing I have always thought is, it's so hard about being an outfitter a guide or running an operation like you do where, you know, you tell people like, listen, we'll drop you off. You're going in here. Don't get out till we come back. And people always get out or people, you know, like they shoot and they want to get down and look for their arrow or look for their deer. And you're just dealing with people who maybe aren't following the rules very well. Like, what do you do about it? Well, what I try to do, and again, there's always exceptions to every rule, but what I try to do on the front end is we'll have a, a meeting or a brief on what our rules are, what our plans are, why we're going to hunt the way we're going to hunt, get a feel. You know, if you know, most of the time I, I try to bring all our guys in during the, 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 you know, the core time, you know, basically Halloween to Thanksgiving. And so it's like, hey, the more time you spend at the lodge, the less time you have you have a chance that you have a kill on a deer. A lot of these guys, again, in Illinois, especially are really hardcore about it. And they, they, I get them to sit all day. So, you know, it's like if I drop you in, I don't need you down logging around. I'm putting you where I would hunt if it was me hunting. And and most guys will get that. You you Some won't. But, you know, try to sell that to them really and understand I'm not wasting your time because it's wasting my time. So, I mean, I'm putting you in the best location, I think, for if we're doing a morning sit or an evening sit or an all-day sit to be successful. And so you, that's what they're asking me to do by booking a hunt with me. They got to trust me. You know, and if they won't yep. do that, I kind of get on them at the brief. It's like, if you can't do that, I don't want to take you into these core areas because you're going to mess them up. And we've spent all year dealing with this. I, I came in here in August and worked my tail off and got everything set and ready to go and left them alone for a month and a half so that no one's been in there. When I drop you in here, you're literally the first person to put their butt in that seat. There's not many places like that, you know, and it's like, please don't mess it up. Uh, and most of the guys get it. And um, you know, again, that's part of the rule out thing. You listen to guys talk and you know what their experience levels are. And if you get that guy that once you pick them up once or twice, kind of know, well, they, they, they might 
you know, we have lots of good areas that are field edge or close to road type setups where they're not going to walk through our best block of timber or something like that. If somebody's got, we always just say if they got ants in their pants or happy feet, that's what Randy <laughs> always says. If they got happy feet, you know, they need to be, we need to be careful where we put them and you just got to, uh, you're still trying to get them in the best location, but based on the way they hunt, you know, we got to assess that and do it. Yeah. Do they, you know, when people are coming in, you know, I mean, you're paying, you're paying good money for a hunt and, you know, they have certain expectations. Do people, do you think like your clients generally understand that concept of like, listen, you're here this week. This is the first time anybody's sat there and, or anybody's been in here in 60 days other than maybe a camera check. Like we're trying to preserve these spots. Like do people generally get that or it probably varies like crazy? It varies. I mean, it definitely varies. Um, these guys that are pretty serious bow hunters, they get it, you know, but, but, but yeah, there's a, there's a small percentage that really don't grasp what I'm like, how, you know, how we're doing, you know, and I'm real strict about how we go in and out, you know, so we're not blowing the woods all the crap. And, and here we have such small timber blocks. So we're, you know, if you blow them out, they may run across a field. It's a half mile, three quarters of a mile to the next timber. He ain't coming back tonight. <laughs> like it's, yep. it's done, you know? And so, I try to really harp on that so they understand it. And there is a method to my madness. Why'd you make me walk across that wide open field for a half a mile when you could have just drove me up, you know, on the backside of the timber because that's where they bed and they're going to know we're in there. And, you know, there's always a reason for it. And I try to explain that on the front end. And, and when we're booking the hunts, I explain to them, this is just a unique scenario. This isn't an outfitter that's running 200 guys a year on a place that should run 50. You know, this is a, a place you could run 50 guys, but I'm running 25, you know, it's just, it's where our big thing is low pressure. Um, and it ups their odds for success. And if they can grasp that concept, they have a really good chance of killing a good deer. The, the other thing I really harp on though, and this is something that, uh, I, you and I've talked about this before, probably years ago when you came down to Texas, hunting has changed a lot, especially on the outfitting side where guys are booking these trips and they're, you know, they're expecting a miracle sometimes that's not realistic. Um, it, it hunting's hunting and it's still hard no matter where you do it. It's just, there's different places and different, I always say it's just different deer or it's a different world of deer hunting in certain spots, but you know, they got to understand it's still Midwest bow hunting. And at the end of the day, everybody is not going to kill a deer. And if you're the guy that has to kill a deer, Midwest bow hunt is probably not the thing for you, to be honest, because it's just the, the odds of success are not super high. I mean, if you look at Illinois or Iowa and look at outfitter average, kill rate's not super high. And that's not because anybody's necessarily doing anything wrong. It's just bow hunting in the Midwest. Yep. Um, and then you factor on the pressure and all the other things that, that affect that. But, you know, it's really t telling them we sell a great experience. And that's what I try to really get across in Texas, here, Iowa, wherever we're doing it. Um, we're selling the experience. We're not at Burger King. I'm ordering a 10 pointer and I want him to score 155, you know, but, but today's world has changed a lot. And there's a lot of guys and I try to screen that on the best I can when we're booking and going through the process of talking to the guys. And I want to set realistic expectations. I mean, we shoot giant bucks on this farm every year, but everybody won't kill that top shelf deer. It's, it's not realistic. I mean, like, uh, you know, your good friend, Jace, when he came out here a couple of years ago, Jace killed a really respectable buck. It wasn't the biggest buck on the Grigsby. He was super fired up, but you know, that's an average deer. And then you've got those top shelf deer. And that's why you come to a place like that. Cause you want to have a chance at them, but that's really what it is, is a chance, yep. not a guarantee. Well, and that's, you know, I, I haven't done a ton of outfitted hunts, but that has always sort of been the message is like, we're going to give you an opportunity or we're going to work real hard to get you an opportunity at a good deer. Then it's up to you. And that's, you know, I, I, I can't remember which hunt it was that we did down in Texas with you, but it was, it was the year that I hit that buck the first morning 
and then oh, ended up shooting sure. him two days later. Yeah. And so, you know, and that stand that you guys had me in there was like, it was awesome. Like I was covered in, I was covered in really great deer for that area. I shot that buck, made a bad shot and then got lucky on him two days later. But I remember one of the other guys going in there after I had killed that buck and talking to him and I didn't know him really well. And I'm not going to say his name, but he was like, you know, and you can't really kill a deer. You don't have that good of shooting lanes out of there and you can't move on that stand very well. And I remember thinking like, dude, I was, I was freaking covered in bucks and that I didn't eat like his complaints didn't even register to me. And right. so in my head, I was thinking, you know, this guy kind of sucks, but really what he just didn't have the experience. That's right. And he was wanting was those wide open, like crazy big shooting lanes where I basically cut the whole dang tree down where you're looking at it. Like, man, I got great cover. I can draw my bow here. I can draw my bow here. These are my two spots. I'm going to shoot them when they come by, you know, it's, again, it's experiences all, you know, that stand, you could sit there and do the two step up there and they wouldn't see you the way it was set. But if, he, if I gave him the pole saw and let him trim it out, you'd probably never see a deer there again. You know, it's just different, you know, yeah. again, different world of whitetail. Yeah. And, and that's why I wanted to have you on because a lot of this stuff, I mean, people are probably going to be listening to this going, well, I'm never going on a guided hunt or, you know, this, this isn't like, that's not my interest, but it's the, it's the damage we do to ourselves. So you, your job is a weird one in the whitetail world. Cause you have to try to minimize the damage a bunch of people are going to do to your best spots. So you got to think everything through the setups, the entrance, the exit, the pressure, the wind, who's going in, who's coming out, what kind of person is hunting there. And we don't think about that a lot of times, you know, if you've got your, your grandma's farm, you've always been hunting. You don't think about necessarily maybe the pressure you're putting on or, you know, the way you're walking in or the way you're thinking about stuff, like your example right there, you know, you think about, you've got, you know, that's a Texas hunt. So you have a feeder there and you're in a live Oak and it's a very typical setup, but it was, it like set up in a way where you weren't going to get busted. I remember having bucks bed below me. And I remember having 360 degrees of deer, especially the first morning when I shot that buck. And to me, I'm like, this is perfect because I'm not going to get busted here. And so, yeah. yeah, like when, when I had to, when I had that buck come in two days after I shot him and I knew it was him and I was the first one dropped off. So I could look in my binoculars in the moonlight. I'm like, there's that deer. Cause he had a, he had a couple broken tines it took like two hours for it to get light and for that deer to get into a uh, shooting lane. And I'm watching him the whole freaking time, just waiting for that redemption shot. But like you said, if, if that tree is just trimmed differently, that whole thing might not happen. Or, you know, the six bucks you see the first morning, there might be two and they might skirt you. And I think, I think we don't think about that stuff quite as much as we should. And you have to, for your job. Oh yeah. And, and, and again, like you said that you brought up a good point. A lot of guys don't realize what they're doing that might damage a spot or educate deer in a spot. Uh, you know, and so I kind of have to evaluate that with the hunter and then how the setups are. And, you know, what we've done in the last few years, we've been, uh, converting some of our more, um, go-to food plot areas, you know, where we might have a really, you know, nice clover turnip patch and a spot that we just know is a kills tree, you know, tree. I've been putting some tower blinds in there to eliminate the movement and the scent and that, that, that fidgety guy that I could put him in the tree and it just doesn't matter what he just can't sit still enough. and doesn't even realize the deer know he's there. Uh, you know, if I put him in that closed in box blind or tower blind setup, I can eliminate a lot of that. And so I've been doing some of that, you know, every year I add three or four to the farm, you know, and I've been just accumulating some. So when I get that guy who's a, you know, he might be the guy that's out here at a hundred yards, just dinging in the yard, you're like, damn, he can shoot, but he can't sit still. 
you know, and you got to get him in a situation, uh, you know, where they can handle that. So I've even been doing some of that to eliminate some of those factors. Um, you know, it's, there's people from all walks of life that come do it. So, you know, you just got to kind of have a a scenario for everybody or attempt to anyway. So do you, when, when you talk about that, you know, when you take a tower blind, you know, you throw up that redneck or whatever you're throwing up versus a, a hang on or a ladder stand. Do you see, yeah. uh, you know, just like a lessened impact from people? Cause I've seen, you know, I, I know people who have them and they still burn out their spots. So probably because they only have like one food plot and that's where they hunt every single time. But you, you being able to control who's going in and when you see that that's like, there's a lessened impact with those. Yeah, I, I do, especially on the deer, especially the food plots where it fills up with deer. So, you know, it doesn't matter how good or how still or, or how perfect the wind is. You get 50, 60 deer come in a food plot and even it's somebody's going to get you at some point because they're going to walk on the wrong side of the tree and smell you or see you or whatever. Or you're looking at these deer and one over here to the right just happened to glance up when you turned your head and you got busted. It's just hard. I have noticed that there's a lot less of that education going on hunting out of those and i try to put them where i can drive to them so if i'm dropping a client literally you know because it's a farm there's tractors and trucks all the time buzzing around here so if i can drive right up play like you know we'll just act like the farmer and get the heck out of there and literally drop them off at the ladder and they get in it by the time the truck leaves the door shut and they're in there sealed up it, it does it has made a pretty big difference in certain especially with certain hunters yeah I, I could see that helping. How do you, how do you manage, you know, so you, you mentioned just, just on that property, which is enormous, you're going to do like 160 setups. You've got the Iowa stuff. You got your Texas stuff. Is it, is it partially just a matter of having as much land as possible to make sure that you can just keep spreading people out and preserving spots and resting spots? I'm big on trying to hunt as fresh. You know, if you if you come on the fourth or fifth hunt of the season, you don't want to hunt behind five guys, you know, or, you know, or unless the spot's red hot, you know, we want to be able to have fresh area to put them in. So, you know, having more ground is good so that I can rotate in and out. But again, it's just, we just got to be smart about how we hunt, when we hunt. If something just goes to, goes all to hell and then just get blown out bad, you know, we try to let it be and calm down. Don't just keep pounding on it. Um, and, it, you know, because these places are big, we are, we do have the luxury of doing that. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of locations or places you may be hunting, you don't have that. I mean, I have small places too, you know, they just, you know, I have the luxury, but here we do. And so we definitely, you know, and again, the number of hunters we take is critical because if I take too many guys at some point, I got to go everywhere, you know, and if I always can, you know, there's certain areas one week, I may just say, we're not even hunting that part of the farm for this week. And next week, that'll be our starting point for the next group. And that way I just know it's fresh. And, you know, that's where I'll be running cameras while these guys are hunting. Cause I've got the data from the week before where they're hunting and just kind of stay ahead of it. Yeah. Do you, I know people are really sensitive to that when they, you know, when they show up in camp, they want to be someplace fresh or, you know, when it's day three, they don't want to get put somewhere where somebody else has been, but there's so much that goes into those decisions. You know, I, I kind of look at it like, you know, I, I hunt a lot of public land, right. And, you know, some States they have like fields on public land, they lease out. It looks very much like private land, but it's open to public. It has everything there, but on those properties, you know, if you have a field, a soybean field on public land somewhere, it's going to get sat. Like people are going to be on there. And I always think about that. It's like, you walk in, you're going to be able to point out, okay, there's going to be a stand in that corner. There's going to be a stand on this little two track connecting them. Like you can just call your shots. And if you think about it that way, you're kind of, you probably are like the fifth person to sit there. If you go sit there and it's not that much different from an outfitted hunt where you're like, this probably isn't going to work for me, especially on a big buck. 
Yeah. Oh, it could it could even be a little even a little tougher on the public land because you really don't know who's been in there. <laughs> you know, and out, out serious, it could be a weekend warrior that you know four or five of those guys only hunt one weekend a year and they went in there and plowed around and did their thing and left, you know? So, uh, you know, it just depends on the type of guys and you don't ever know who you're following. And that's so different with the outfitted hunt, but in Illinois, my guys are typically a little more serious. And, and I, I really, you know, it might even be annoying to some of the guides and the hunters. I micromanage the hell out of it, but you know, it's because I really want to have control of how that's all going down. And then I, I like to think it work. Our little formula works, you know. Where we we take twenty five to, you know, last year we took twenty seven guys and killed twenty one bucks. You know, it's pretty strong. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was, especially when you're talking about Midwest bow hunting. Um, yeah, that's that's about as good as it's gonna get. Anybody that tells you they're running a hundred percent, they're lying to you. Um, you know, or they took one guy. <laughs> Not unless they have a real big fence surrounding their property. Right, right, right. Yeah. And even still, you probably can't pull that off. Yeah, that's true. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where 
Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth when you think about like your texas operation you know people go to texas and they're like i'm gonna have an easy hunt i'm gonna hunt a feeder simple stuff but even then you can see how people can just burn a spot and so even it might you know it might be a feeder on a water tank and so you have two like humongous draws there right you got the corn morning evening and then you've got water and you can still see people, just the wrong person, burn out a spot like that. And so when you talk about, yeah, public land, like we always think like, yeah, that's that's harder than this. But in reality, cumulative pressure is just cumulative pressure. Like, you know, we, we look at the bucks like they're so tough to kill. And it's like, man, not until we make them that way. And that's well, how you do it. A white-tailed deer. I've had guys come down to Texas and tell me a deer, man, your deer are dumb. This is crazy how dumb these deer are. It's the same deer you hunt at home. He, he just has no pressure. You know, or it's been, man, you know, even, even in Illinois, I'll have guys go, man, this farm, these deer hardly, I mean, we're sitting in this stand and it's, I, I didn't necessarily have great cover. Nothing looked up at me. They don't get, sl- arrows don't get slung at them every five minutes. You know, it's just not, it, that deer has not been overeducated its entire life on how to stay alive. It's a survival instinct. I mean, they, those deer just see that so much more often. And it's part of, it's like my deer, my um, the Grigsby, our biggest worry that deer's that buck's biggest worry is probably a coyote grabbing him and you know eating him you know especially from birth to you know three or four years old well you know it's no different on the public land you know their biggest fear is probably or issue is hunters you know and they're looking at you know it's a different way of survival is all they're not any smarter they just got educated yep well that's that's a message we're trying to get across with this because we just do not look at ourselves like predators like we don't you know, I, I where I live, you know, I live in Minnesota, right? We have we have the highest population of wolves in the lower forty-eight. Only Alaska has us beat. And when you listen to people who hunt like the upper third of the state, it's just constant complaining about wolves. And I get it, like they when wolves swing through, it sucks. But we look at them like they're or mountain lions too, like they're just these voracious killers. They kill a deer a week, and they're so good at it. And they hunt, you know, like you get them wintered up, they're just toast or whatever. But we never look at ourselves and go. You know, like for the average rifle hunter in Minnesota, it's like, okay, if a deer walks in some kind of opening within like 250 yards of you, you can kill it. Like that's a huge advantage, right? Like you have binoculars, you have all kinds of stuff at your advantage, trail cameras out there scouting for you. And when you walk into the woods, they are terrified of you. Like bar none, like no question about it. And we don't think about it that way. So we just go like, oh, I walk in, I check my camera, no big deal, right? Like I walk in and I sit this stand, no big deal. Like you don't, you don't think of yourselves the same way you would think of a couple of wolves strolling through there, but it's probably the same effect on those deer. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, again, you are the alpha predator. And if you're in a place I'm not in Minnesota, but if you're in a place where those predators don't exist, you are the wolf. I mean, in a sense, I mean, we sure are chasing them or bumping them a heck of a lot more than wolves or coyotes would be. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I think it just, it's a really good thought exercise to just consider yourself that way and go, you know, like, I don't care what you think about yourself. The deer don't like you at all. (laughs) They don't want you in there. They don't like you. They don't like smelling that you were in there. They sure as hell don't like seeing you in a tree. They don't like it when you try to kill them. Like you, when you, when you start thinking about it that way, 
it sort of just kind of like centralizes this thought around like, you know, outfitted hunts, DIY public land, doesn't really matter. When you start factoring in X amount of people in a certain spot messing with the deer, then then you've got to think differently than other people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you got to find those spots. It's like those off the wall places or those pinch points that no one's really going to because they always go straight to the water or straight to the food or the obvious place that deer should be. But like you say, it gets burned up and these deer, you know, you, you may have to get tight on them where they're bedding because that buck just got so dang nocturnal other than him getting up and stretching or bumping a doe in the bed and area or something. You don't have a lot of chance at them. Um, you know, and you, you got to hunt different when, when the deer are getting educated like that. But at the same time, you're also put, a, applying that pressure we're talking about when you do hunt that way and get that aggressive. So, you know, there's, you, there's a lot that goes into it and I'm probably the worst guy about it when I'm, I'll sit down in the kitchen when, when all our hunters go to bed and I make the plan for the next day and I have a, a little notepad, I do it on it and I'll, I'll have written out every stand for the wind that morning on the farm that works, you know, so I might have 40 stands listed and I'll be putting guys in them. And then I go back and mark it out. I don't want to do that because that guy won't like that. Or, you know, I sit there and I change my mind 15 times, you know, and then when we kill them, I'm like, Oh, I worked perfect. It's like, no, nah, I just got lucky because I swapped spots eight times, you know? Uh, but, but all the, all the stands on the list are the right kind of setups, you know? And it's just, um, you know, again, we're, we're lucky because we have so many options, but, um, Man, there's so much that goes into it and there's so many different ways you can approach it and not none of them are wrong unless you're just, you know, doing it all wrong, you know, but if I've got the right list of stands with the right winds and approaches and all, it's just a matter of it all coming together and it doesn't work every day, you know, and that's the thing guys got to realize. Well, and this, this is something, you know, in, in your world, the properties you're dealing with, they're big, so it's a scale thing. So most people listening to this, they're dealing with smaller properties, obviously, and fewer setups but fewer hunters too. And so when you, when somebody's thinking about this, like I just, I just dropped a foundations episode on this. It's like uh, giving yourself options is so important. Like if you, if you've got, you know, I I remember, you know, growing up hunting the same farm in Southeastern Minnesota with my dad, where we'd go out and hang, you know, five stands, six stands in the summer. That was your spots, September, October, November, December, you know, rut, hot, lull, whatever. It didn't matter. It was like, okay, we're going to just pick from one of these six spots. And it's like, you can't get away with that. Like you, you just know, like eventually every one of those places is going to be burned. And then you start crossing your fingers for the rut to rescue your ass. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. But when you're talking about that, like, you know, you've got eight hunters in camp and you go, okay, tomorrow's a Northwest wind and we have 40 spots. You can take that right down to, okay, you're one hunter and tomorrow you have, you know, that Northwest wind. How many spots do you have to go to? Is it one or two, or did you give yourself four or five, six options? Or do you have a saddle where you can go and pick out a specific tree or do you have that climber? Do you have something that can just expand those options? Cause even just like doubling your options creates such a better opportunity to preserve real deer, deer movement out there. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the, 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 the public land stuff that you're talking about or guys that are hunting smaller farms, you know, it's just smaller tracts of land. Um, you know, the, the other factors is you just don't know what the other guy's doing. <laughs> you know, you don't know what your neighbor's doing or how your neighbor goes in and out and you could be doing everything perfect. It's like, dang, it just doesn't ever work. And I'm getting pictures of these deer and they're in here and it may not have a damn thing to do with what you're doing wrong. Yep. Uh, it's what the guys next to you are doing wrong. And so that, that's the, that's the factor that you just can't control yeah. And I mean, you just look at that and go, okay, I know probably where some people are going to access this property. I know where some people are probably going to go sit. 
I'm just going to do something different. It's the same kind of concept that you're doing. You're just controlling mostly who's going in and who's going out. You know, when you don't have that control, it does. That's a wild card, but you can make some educated guesses and go, I just don't want to be like other people. And that's, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Cause I know, you know, like my strategy for whitetail hunting is find a spot where deer like to walk and go there and shoot them. I'm not a big caller scent guy. I'm not a like, I, I'll, I'll use a little bit of that stuff in the right situation, but mostly I like to just figure out where deer like to be. And I know you guys are looking at this going, we got to put people right where deer want to go. We don't, you're not like, I'm going to put the best rattler in this spot and he's going to rattle one in. You know I mean? You might have something like that, but you're probably look at that almost like it's a negative with everybody and go, don't draw attention to yourself. Just, just let us put you there. Yeah. I'm putting you in the best place that I think you have a great opportunity to kill today based on the current scenario. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm big on the least amount of footprint you can leave and, and put out there while you're sitting, the better, you know, if you keep drawing attention to everything you do by overcalling or, you know, addressing every deer with a call that shows up in the food plot. I mean, it, you can't do that because that will straight up burn up a spot really quick. So, and if you're hunting smaller properties or public land, I would even be more strict about that. I'd be very careful because everybody else is doing that wrong. You know, and so you got to remember that. And it, like you said, I agree with you 100%. Get where deer want to walk. Get where deer want to feed. Get where deer are going to go. Get between point A and point B in the travel corridor and put your hours in and it will happen. You know, you just got to do that. How, how do you guys address that? when you, you know, like if you think about some of your Texas stuff, super high deer density. And like, that's kind of where people think like, man, I'm going to go put my back to a mesquite tree and I'm going to rattle and bucks are going to run in from everywhere. Yeah. And, and you have pretty high visibility during certain times of the year down there, just because of the, the nature of the terrain. How do you deal with that with people who show up and they're like, man, I'm going to clang these antlers together every 20 minutes all day long. Well, I try to, if, and, it, the reason it works so good down there is because in a lot of cases, the buck to doe ratio is tight. And so they got to fight to breed. So when they hear a fight, they'll come. And so that's different than what you're going to experience in Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa, you know, wherever you're hunting, where you got higher d- doe densities, because, you know, he doesn't have to get in a fight every five minutes to, to get a doe. Uh, down there they do. And so it's a little bit different, but it's still a very small window of time that it'll work. And so if they're hunting in those times that are not in that window, I'm like, please don't like all you're doing is educating. All you're doing is screwing it up. And if they do come in, they're going to be so dang cautious. They're going to bust you before you ever have a chance at them anyway. So it's not the right time. If you're in that 10, 12 day window when it is working really well, you know, we will try to make sure we're one-on-one guiding those guys and kind of control the situation a little bit, especially if they don't have a lot of experience doing it. Cause a lot of times when we set up guys will go, I'll tell them, Hey, I want you facing downwind because that's our vulnerable side and a big mature buck. A lot of bucks won't go downwind, but the mature buck will, because he wants to scent check it before he sees it. And he wants to make sure everything's legit before he comes in and that's where he's going to get us. And so if he did show up there, I need you ready for that. If he shows up when he's upwind from us and we're good, we have time to turn and adjust and set up and probably kill him. So a lot of guys look at me like, what do you want me facing downwind? They're not going to come from there or we're not going to get a chance. I'm like, nah, that's probably where you're going to shoot him. And you're going to have three seconds because he's going to get us when he gets downwind. So I want you ready for that and we'll deal with this if it happens. But most of the time, those big bucks will circle you and end up. And again, you've got to be in that window of time and it's not very big where it's going to work. And if it's outside that, leave them alone. I'll, I mean, we always joke, we'll reach over and grab the horns and go leave those in the truck. You know, it's just, 
because all you're doing is screwing it up. Yeah. Well, and that, that point right there uh, about the mature bucks circling downwind, that's something, you know, when I first hunted your place down in Texas and I was covered in deer, I was, I was, I was that guy. I was like, these are the dumbest deer. I can't believe this. This is amazing. You know, like I could hit them with rocks and then you spend a little more time and you're like, Oh, okay. Now you, when you see the one step out that has like the deep chest and like, you're like, that's that deer's different. That deer's older. Those are the ones that are swinging downwind and they're, and they're doing things just a little bit differently than a lot of the other deer. And I think we look at that and we go, you know, when I sit this stand, deer come through here and, but big bucks never come through here. They're too smart or they're too nocturnal or something. And it's like, man, they're probably just a little bit more cautious and you probably never saw him, you know, circle 75 yards downwind, pick you up. Or when you were doing that rattling session, you might've got him to come in and check you out at to some level. And he goes, uh, uh-uh. uh, he hit your entrance route or something and it's, it's over. And then it might, that spot might be over for him. Well, and, and the one thing that guys don't realize when you're rattling or grunting or snort wheeze, whatever, whatever you're throwing at them, a whitetail knows exactly where that comes from. Like a hundred percent, they will key in and to the tree, to the spot. And so I always tell guys, it's like calling ducks or, or turkeys or anything else. When you got them coming, you better shut up because he will find you. I mean, remember, he's looking for a deer that's making this noise. And if he, as he gets closer, he's going to get more and more cautious because he can't see what he hears. And he's like, now I'm close enough. I should be able to see it. Where, where is it? And a lot of times that's when they leave. Or like you say, you just didn't pick him up. He's standing there in the open timber. You're up in the canopy, you know, and he's looking through. They're like, I don't see what I hear. And I ain't going over there, especially if they've been educated or there's pressure on them. And, you know, you've got to. If you if you see them and they're coming, I mean, I'm big on shut up and let them let them get curious because the curiosity will kill them. Not not you know, if you just keep banging the horns together or or continue to grunt at them and they're going to key in on it. They know because when they come charging in in Texas, when they are running you over and you're in that little window of time when it works, they come to the mesquite bush I'm sitting at. I mean, a lot of times they really do come within yards of us because he knows exactly where the sound is. He literally came to it. Well, that shows you. I mean, if I would have stopped. If I knew he was coming, a lot of times you can't see him coming in that brush. If I knew he was coming, I stopped. He may have approached me differently, and I might have had multiple opportunities to kill him because he got curious. And I'm sitting there beating the horns together and just they, you know keeping him coming. Um, you know, so just keep that in mind. You guys really need to think that through when they're calling. You know, you don't overdo it because they will find you. Well, yeah, and it's such a it's such a situation by situation thing, right? Where you know, I think that you could make a billion dollars if you made a grunt tube that wouldn't work if you were panicked, if it could somehow like test your like adrenaline level or something and just be like, Nope, this, this dude's too jacked up. I'm not going to do it because we hit that panic button a lot where that buck isn't going to come in for some reason. And so before he turns because he heard the grunt and he starts, he just pins his ears back. He's coming like it worked, but no dude, stop. You know, the first one was all you had to do. Well, yeah. And you see people, you you can, the safest call probably in that situation is grunt call because you can keep it pretty subtle and you can kind of direct it a little bit. But when you see somebody rattle that way, you're just like, (laughs) this is, is, it's just over. And most of the time when you're grunting at them that way, it's over too, or snort wheezing or whatever. And, you know, it's a matter of, I I remember I, I, I did an uh, outfitted hunt years ago in Illinois and I remember talking to one of the guides there and he was just saying like, I've got a deer that's so killable. He's a good buck in this spot. And I wasn't hunting it. I was hunting a different spot, but he was telling me about it. 
And he's like, if I can just get everybody to leave him alone and hunt this the way I want to, somebody's going to kill him. But he's like, if they go in and they make a lot of contact with this buck, because he was, I don't remember exactly what he was doing, but he was using this woodlot heavy, but it wasn't like he was always walking right by the stand, but that was his area. And he's like, it's just a matter of time. If we do our job right and don't let him know, then this deer's going to die. Somebody's going to get a great shot at him. But if one of these guys goes in <laughs> and shows him what we're up to, it's freaking over. Right. Yeah, that that is very, very true. And guys just got to, again, that that is no different than the walking in and out wrong or the wind being wrong. It's that additional pressure we're applying and, you know, the deer just get more and more cautious. So how, I, I was thinking about something, you know, I know if you're, if you're talking Illinois, that, that property there, or Iowa, you've got, you know, bow season going on and then gun season comes in. But I know down in Texas, there's, there's concurrent season. So you could be bow hunting while there's guys rifle hunting out there. And, you know, you could have people who are sitting in blinds and tree stands on water or feeder or whatever, but you could have somebody else who's like, I'm going to walk around with uncle Randy and I'm going to carry my rifle and we're going to shoot stuff. How do you manage you know, like two vastly different styles of hunting, two two totally different weapons on the same ground. Well, there's certain areas that you're just going to do a lot of damage walking or spotting and stalking, and we won't even entertain doing that in those areas. And that, you know, or we've, if we have a stand or a feeder or a, or a blind, whatever, that's really hot, or there's a shooter buck that's been, you know, you know frequenting a spot where we're not going to go in there and do crazy stuff. You know, a lot of times if the guy wants to go do that, we'll go to the oddball area. You know, the, those properties have deer and all, you know, they're, they're all over those ranches, but we, we'll, we're going to go somewhere. You know, a lot of times I, I be honest. I mean, a lot of times that's when I'm scouting. I'll go, let's go walk this Northwest corner of the property. Cause you know, I've never walked through that block. And if you want to go spot and stocking by God, let's go in there and see what's in there. You know, and it's a good lesson for me too. Like I'm always learning every time I'm in the field. And, you know, if I've walked through the same block a hundred times, I don't necessarily want to go walk it again. You know, I, I like to learn and see new stuff too. So I'll, I'll take advantage of that and, and, and go after Again, we're spoiled down there every little bit because the densities are so high. Um, but I'm definitely not going to go pounding the pavement, you know, in areas that I know if we just hunt that stand right, we'll kill a deer. You know, we're just not going to do that. And I'll tell the guy, if you go sit in that stand, you can kill a deer. Or if you want to go spot and start, we're going to go over here. Not really sure what we might see, but you never know. Let's go try it if you want. And some guys are like, let's go. And other guys go, you really think I should get in that stand? And I'm like, 150%. You know, that's what it's there for. I haven't had anybody in there. And here's the picture. It's like, I can't do any more other than tell you, you need to be sitting there. You know, and, um, you know, guys, some, some listen, some don't. <laughs> it just depends on what you get. Well, like, maybe this is a bad question to ask, but what? What percentage of the time when a client is talking to you, do you just assume they're lying? Because I know when you get when you get people in, they'll talk about the encounters they had or the misses they had or something, and it's never their fault. And I, I don't want I don't want to say we have any. I would hope nobody's just point blank lying. But what they do is they get excited and they exaggerate the hell out of whatever they they might've saw six or seven does and it was 25 deer and, you know, or they saw 130 inch eight point and there's a 160 running around in there and, you know, they're excited or they may not have the, the, the experience or knowledge to really know what they were looking at. And for, you know, like I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, 
if we saw 130, I, I didn't see very many 130 inch deer there. Like when you did, if you really actually saw 130 inch buck when I was a kid, you would have done everything in your power to kill that deer. I mean, because it was the biggest damn thing in the county. Um, you know, and you'd rode around with it in the back of your truck with the tailgate down for a month so everybody could see the antlers. You know, I mean, it was just, you know, and so a lot of that happens where guys come in and I'm like, yeah, hey, you didn't see that. Or, you know, or, you know, I mean, I, I can't because of, and, you know, and I'm guilty because I, I'm in that business, but like a lot of on TV or articles they might read or, you know, guys on YouTube, whatever they're watching, you know, that 200 inch term gets thrown around or that 170 term gets thrown around. And a lot of guys have no idea how big 170 inch deer is. And I have a lot of guys come in and tell me, especially in Illinois, man, I saw two 170s in there today. I'm like, yeah, probably not. You know, like two together, like they're just hanging out together, you know, in the middle of the rut. No, I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. not, not that it can't happen, but it's probably not the case. They just got excited and they, or they don't know what they're looking for. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where 
Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. When I first hunted with you down there in Texas, my exposure to Texas had always been, you know, outdoor channel stuff. And, you know, so those super wide, dark antlered bucks down there. And then, you know, I get down there and I see a lot of really nice deer and I'm with a bunch of guys of varying levels of experience Mm -hmm. and people are talking about how big these deer are. And then you start killing them and you're like, they're nice deer, but they're not 107. You know, I mean, like, like you said, where you were in the hill country. Yeah. You know, those deer have really small bodies, like really small. So they ground shrink. And, you know, you're used to looking at Minnesota deer and you just see a deer out there at 100 yards walk by. But, man, that's a really big buck. But when you walk up and he only weighs 120 pounds live weight, yep. you know, that's that's a different deer. I mean, there are subspecies of the deer that you're used to looking at. And so, again, it, it, you know, I have a lot of guys go, you all know, come down and go, man, I just can't judge these Texas deer. You got to sit somebody with me because I, I just can't. I can't tell how big they are, you know, and, you know, you got to put it all in reference, you know, it, you reference the size of things. So I always try to tell guys how long their ears are, you know, the distance from the eye to the corner of their nose. And then you can kind of judge the rack a little bit because you can get a reference. Okay. That's six inches. You can kind of roll it up the beam and look at the tines, you know, but if you're used to looking at Illinois or Saskatchewan bucks or something, and you can sit there and go, well, gosh, in reference to the head of that deer, that deer's 170. And it's like, yeah, he's about 140, yep. <laughs> you know, because there's just no deer there. Well, it, do you, do you think that people though, I mean, kind of where I'm going with this is like, I always, I, I, I kind of like have a firm belief, like 125, 130 inch buck is a really good deer anywhere. Like sure. when you see, you know, I, I know that you, know, you get into the heart of Illinois where you're at, like that's, that's not, that's not the deer that a lot of people are looking for. You draw that Iowa tag. And yet most people, when they get it in a tree stand and 130 inch, comes down the trail. Like they're, they're scrambling for their release, right? Like yeah. and, the, the arrows are flying. Yeah. And it, we, it, one of the things that, oh, and I've bitched about this a lot, but it drives me nuts as we talk about, like, I'll hear people say, oh, I had a little 125 incher come in. I'm like, I've never seen a little 125 incher. Well, and the, the other thing is, I mean, look, the standard for, you know, Pope and young buck, it, you know, that's what it is. I mean, that's a heck of a nice deer, yep. uh, you know, and that, and a lot of times like our South Dakota hunts, we used to do a lot. I would tell guys, if you want an opportunity at a, there, there is a truckload of Pope and young deer there, you know, that 125 to 140 type deer. And that's a heck of a deer anywhere. And there's just a super high quantity of those deer there. It's a great place to go bow hunt if you're looking for that, you know? And yeah, I mean, Guys will talk again. The numbers get thrown around these stupid scores, and they really just don't know what they're talking about, or or they're real lucky and get to hunt a place that does have deer like that. But you know, 130 inch bucks a nice buck. I've shot tons of them, and I'm going to keep shooting. I mean, that's just a nice deer. Uh, or where you hunted in Texas, 130 inch buck in that hill country area is a big buck. Yep. Man, that's a really big buck because you don't get any mass. Might get long tines, but you walk up and you're like, man, I've never shot a buck with horns that spindly you know but you know they just they won't score it and really at the end of the day i've gotten where and i try to kind of school our clients on this i don't really care what they score 
you know, when I was younger, I wanted to kill the biggest deer ever, but you know, really what I, I really want to beat that five and a half year old. If I beat that really mature buck, I, I really could give two cares about what he scores. It's just, man, you see that tank. I mean, I could, I just killed the biggest buck in that block, you know, or, you know, I killed that eight year old buck over there. That's super cool. You know, my son killed his first Illinois deer last year with me here and it was an eight point. Yeah. It was a, it was a 130 inch eight point awesome deer. He was, you know, about to lose his mind. But it, it was a six and a half year old, just monster deer, you know, and when he walked out, you just couldn't believe how big the deer was. And I was like, but you beat the smartest deer in that block. I mean, that's, that's the deer with all the education. That's the deer that's seen all the guys in the trees. That's the the deer that we couldn't kill all season. And you got him, you know, is I like to win that battle. I don't really care what they score. You know, I just like killing whitetails. Yep. Do you, do you see that changing? Cause it, I feel like that's changed a little bit where people, it wasn't that long ago where there was like a real score obsession. Like I gotta, I want to get my 150. I want to get my 160, whatever. And now I feel like it switched a little bit more to that emphasis on mature bucks or not. Yeah, I think a lot of land managers have, you know, guys that are managing even small farms, big farms, whatever, you know, landowners have switched gears a little bit. And so the hunter has switched based on the guy they're leasing from is saying, Hey, this is what I want done. Or, or the buddy that lets you come hunt his farm is like, Hey, we're not shooting unless they get a little older. Um, you know, <sighs> Uh, but there's still guys wanting to, you know, they're still talking score. And again, that, I'll blame a lot of that on TV because, you know, that's, you know, we did that for years and I won't name, like you wouldn't name anybody earlier, but I'll, I won't name shows, but that's all they talk about. Like, why don't we just have a great whitetail hunt, man? I just had a blast sitting here with my, like with my son, we just, this buck came out, committed suicide. It never happens like that. We've been trying all season and it just can't, all came together best time ever i could give two shits what that thing scores i don't care because that was that again i felt the experience that was the best experience you could have drawn up that day you just don't get any better and it uh, oh you know i i I would like i hope you're right that people are kind of coming back around to that because that that's really that's hunting um that's what hunting's supposed to be um you know and so yeah we all want to manage and grow big deer and shoot big deer but i mean at the end of the day i like eating back straps and you know talking about how that all came together well, and that's, that's gotta be something that's challenging with being, you know, being an outfitter like that is, you know, you look at this and, and people, people so often either want to book an outfitted hunt because they haven't killed X buck or Y buck, or, you know, they want to draw that Kansas tag because of the same reason. And there's that, that trophy focus, but really like, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me about Texas hunting cause it's so, so different than most of my hunting. You know, people are obsessed with the pigs and the opportunity and stuff too, but really I'm like, man, you know, it's a weird hunt for me, but it it was so fun because of the deer behavior you'd see. And it wasn't like you were going to freaking blank. Like, you know, I mean, the, the first morning I ever hunted down there when I shot that one buck that I ended up shooting later, I just remember thinking I've seen more fights. I've heard more snort wheezes. I've seen more just like mature buck activity and behavior in three hours than I could rack up in my style of hunting in 10 seasons. I mean, it was like, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe two seasons, but still it was like, holy cow, this is a really fun hunt. Like it's an experience. And it's not just a means to a dead, you know, whatever incher. Yeah. Well, I always tell my buddies that I grew up with back in North Carolina, it's a different world of whitetail hunting. And when you come out and hunt that South Texas stuff, especially during the rut, when it's, you know, it's just on, 
that you'll probably see and experience more buck and rut activity than you will in three or four seasons, you know, and you'll see more bucks than you will in three or four seasons in a three or four day hunt. Again, it's a different world of whitetail hunting. It's a different world of pressure. But if you really want to understand deer and understand their mannerisms and really what deer do naturally, you get to see all that. It is cool to be able to experience it. And again, if a guy can come with an open mind on a hunt and understand that he's coming for that experience, that's the client I want to take versus the guy that's like, nope, I came here to shoot a 157 or bigger because my biggest one's 157 and I have to do that. You know, and you're, you're, you know, you got the pressure of trying to, you know, pull something out, you know, out of your hat. You can't do it. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or they've set themselves up for failure before they came. And again, that goes back to the screening part of what I like to do, you know, when we're talking and booking the hunts and try to, you know, just be real frank with guys like that, or even in a way eliminate dealing with guys like that just because I don't want to, I don't want to let anybody down. We always try our best. Well, and that, that's a good example there because, you know, people have lots of different reasons for doing this stuff, but when you, when you kind of narrow it down to that one thing, like, okay, 156 is my biggest. I want that 157 or, or it's not worth it. You start to just like change the whole reason to be out there. And I, like, I've been preaching this a long time. Like it's the same reason, you know, like I like to travel to new States and hunt public land. Like, the experience teaches me something all the time. And I just enjoy that part of it. Like it's not when you kind of, when you get to a certain point in your career, a lot of times you're just kind of like you said, I don't really care about score anymore. Like I don't, I don't go into the season going, it has to be this buck or nothing. And I find myself enjoying it a hell of a lot more because I've done that in the past. And I, I'm always curious about that with like outfitted hunts. Cause people, you know, when you get that money involved and then you get some ego being in camp and, you know, one guy kills a great big one on the first night and then everybody else hasn't killed one yet. Like the dynamics get really weird, but the people who go into it and they're like, I don't care. I just want to see some deer and have my chance. They tend to do pretty well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I, I get to hunt this property again. I'm really lucky to be able to do that. I get to hunt this property every year. I shoot two bucks here every year, one with a bow, one with a shotgun. And last year I shot two eight points. I did. I, I shot, I, and they were both big mature bucks. And again, I, I, they, they were perfect hunts that I rattled the one in I killed with the bow, you know, it just was too perfect of a, a, a the experience of what was happening. I got caught up in the moment and I shot him. He's dead, you know, and then my shotgun deer was a deer I'd been seeing for three years. And he just, it was a buck we wanted to get out of there. And he walked out five minutes after daylight the first morning and I shot him, you know, and again, it goes back to, I said it earlier, I like to eat back straps too. And, you know, I was having a damn good time and I was tickled to death, you know, and I can, I've shot some really big bucks here and could continue to do that. And, you know, I took a guy, the spot I killed my shotgun buck, I popped up a blind in a cornfield that had been cut. And I'd been watching deer cross this pinch point in the field. And I shot my buck that morning. I took a client there this, that afternoon that has hunted with me for years. He shot a 187. <laughs> so if I'd have stayed there all day, that's what I'd have killed. You know, but 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 it was awesome. I sat there, I actually filmed him killing it. It was it was I had no idea that deer was gonna show up there. So you really don't know what's gonna happen. But I mean just an absolute stud. So I shoot, I shot a 135 and he go 187 and, and, but we were both just as happy with what happened. You know, it was just awesome experience. It's, it's a good place to be in when you don't really care about that stuff that much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and, and quite frankly, you can't bitch about going out and killing a 135 incher. That's right. You can't, and, and you shouldn't, but a lot of guys would, you know, and that's, you know, like you said, hopefully that we got a little evolution going back to let's just go out and have a good dang hunt and, you know, enjoy everybody in camp and have a good time. Okay. So you wouldn't throw your clients under the bus when I asked you about them lying to you, but I got to ask you this. 
How do you feel when a client comes back and they say, oh, you know, the big one came in and I shot, everything felt really good, but I didn't see him go down. Then what happens in your head? Uh, we're going to wait and give him some time, <laughs> but, but, uh, it's frustrating. I'm not going to lie. I mean, we've had the, me and Randy have had multiple conversations over the years. We come in and go, man, everything worked perfect. And this guy just screwed it up. You know? And it, I mean, it's not that we're like picking on him. It's just, it's frustrating because it actually worked. All the stuff we had done came together and it's like, Damn it, man. And I've done it. I mean, I've missed them or wounded one or screwed it up or, you know, but it's still, you're just like, oh, come on, dude. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, we, we've definitely never to a client, but we've definitely in private or downstairs, you know, where the guys are all gathered around. It's like, this guy's missed three times, man. It's just, just getting ridiculous. I mean, you know, and they know who they are if they're listening to this because they're like, I hunted with him last year, missed three times. <laughs> well, then I was talking about you with Randy, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of those things. And, and this happens with everybody does this and it, it happens with your buddies where, you know, you, you just have a unique perspective on seeing so many more people come back and say, I took this shot. Here's what I think happened or, or different. Here's what I believe happened. Well, most I, of the time they don't know what happened. If they're super excited, yeah. I, more than 50% of the time, you can almost throw out what they told you. And just throw it away because and and what I mean by that is okay where exactly was he standing especially a gun hunter if it was 150 yards out there sometimes it takes me longer to find where the deer was because they really don't know they didn't reference anything they got excited they watched the deer run off and they they can barely tell you what direction it ran um, you know or they they shot it and they think they smoked it and it's shot in the hips you know or you know it's gut shot or or man the angle was perfect i hit him last rib but really it was broadside and it went straight through the middle you know but, you know because i mean i've had it happen to me you know but a lot of times we get especially when they're excited you get a story that's just not when you find it it's not what you thought or you know it's like and they go i know he didn't go that way and when you start looking for blood it's like well the blood trouble is that way you know and that happens a lot yeah well and that, i mean that's what what comes from a lot of experience with this stuff is you learn to not trust yourself as much as you think you should in those moments. Cause you start filling in the blanks and you, you know, everybody gets real jacked up oh, and yeah. everybody thinks things happen that didn't. And you know, that colors your blood trailing, that colors your recovery time. It cover, colors everything. And when you, you just get a unique look at it when you're in an, on an outfitted hunter, you're running an outfit like you are where you get, you get just more exposure to that. And I'll remember we, we hunted down there one time with you and there was a guy there, another writer who shot a buck and, you know, he came back to camp. I hit it right behind the shoulder, but it ran off and it bedded down with its head up and then it got up and then it moved a little bit and it bedded down again. And I remember talking to him and he was like, you know, I, I know that shot was perfect. And I'm like, well, nope, it wasn't. And he got really pissed at me. And I was like, well, it clearly, the angle was clearly off. If you hit him where you think you did, that's just not how it's going to shake out, you know? Well, and, if you pop two lungs, they, they no. don't sit with their head up. It just doesn't happen. No. And, you know, when they got that buck, he came back to camp. And the first thing he did is he walked up to me and said, I hit that buck right behind the shoulder. So, okay, where's the exit? And the exit was all the way through his ass because the deer was almost facing him. And yep. so, you know, in his head, I mean, there was some ego tied up in there, whatever. But in his head, he's like, I hit that buck right where I should. And I see a lot of, of new hunters kind of do that where it's like, I just got to get it behind the shoulder. And they yeah. don't factor in, you know, what, what always think about draw the line through and where's it coming out. You yeah. got 
you've got to draw that line of how it's going to happen. A lot of guys do that. I have a ton of guys hit them where, again, everything looks perfect. The knock's in the right spot. And it's like, man, that deer was facing away from you way too hard or he was facing to, to you too much or, you know, there's a million things happen. Or you're shooting a big expandable broadhead and it hit the ribs and kicked and the knock looked good, but the hit's really way up here. You know, you just – and again, you're excited. So you see things that you think are there and are not, you know I mean? I, we've all done. It. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, you know, in those, in those situations, it's just like the more, the more experience you have, the more you realize like I might've gotten this wrong and I'm going to be careful. Yeah. And, it, and, and it, it, it does that, but it also does when you see people who are, you know, who, who are given big bucks, a lot of credit. The, one of the worst things that can happen to them is a botched encounter like that where they lose one because then you start thinking these things are, I'm never going to get one or I'm never going to kill this caliber of buck or whatever. So the next time one walks down the trail, you know, you think you lost your shit before and yeah. when you, when you gut shot one, you didn't find it or whatever. Now, when you get another chance, you're you know, like mentally, you're going to be that much worse off. And that's like a snowball effect. And it's really rough to overcome that sometimes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of bow hunt is right here. You just got to be able to, you know, have the head game to keep it together and, and, you know, make execute the shot and not think about past or, you know, you know things that have happened. It's, it's tough. And, and a lot of that's experience too. You know, if guys haven't been out there a lot and haven't slung a lot, I know when I was a kid first started bow hunting, I slung a lot of arrows before deer died. <laughs> It was too bad, but it was my nerves. I couldn't control it. You know, when I finally learned how to control it and I got one, I was like, oh, I can do this. You know, and I've just had, as I've matured as a hunter, I've got where I can control that a lot better. I still get excited, but it's after more than it is before. I almost try to get mad at them, you know, like I'm, you know, I guess really zero in on it or, or I'll lose my crap and screw it up, you yep. know, punch a trigger like anybody else will. Well, that, and that's one of the things, I mean, it, we, we always, you know, we do these podcasts, we write these articles, whatever. And we always talk about these strategies and hunting styles and here, here's how you do it. Or, you know, you, like we were talking about earlier, you just preserve that movement, you know, really be a good ninja out there in the woods and don't let them know they're on you or, you know, you're on them. And then all of a sudden you'll get your shot, but it's like, you can't, you can't learn that part through osmosis. Like I can't tell you how to be a killer when that deer's 20 yards away. Like you got to get through that bullshit you're talking about where you miss a bunch of them or you make bad shots and almost everybody goes through that. And you might be talking five years. You might be talking 10 seasons, it, you know, depending on how much experience you get, it might be like a significant, significant portion. You get. I mean, you yeah, may, exactly. You may be hunting public land or a small farm that you only get one or two cracks a year. And if you're screwing up those, you know, it might take you four or five seasons before you can put it together. Yep. And, it, and, and you go from, you know, that place where you're like excited to see them come, but you're scared because you don't want to screw it up to now you're like, don't, you better not walk through here. Cause you're going to die. And when you kind of flip that switch, it's like a wonderful thing and it still goes wrong. But when oh, you start to believe like that 140, 150 come down the trail, like now you're in trouble now, not I'm in trouble because <laughs> he's coming. That's like such a beautiful place to be. And it's like, it, there's no way to get there other than just lots of encounters. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I got a couple questions left for you before we wrap this up. Uh, just, just out of like personal curiosity. So you, you brought up your son and I know your son's a hunting fool, which is, doesn't surprise me at all knowing you and your dad, but I always tell people who go to Texas, cause you know how it is. Like everybody's like, Hey, I want a pig hunt. I want a deer. I want to shoot these mesquite deer, whatever. But when you get to Texas, there's like raccoons and there's armadillos and there's all kinds of stuff running around and people kind of turn into 
like that eight-year-old boy with his first BB gun. It's like, I want to shoot the shit out of everything. How do you, how do you deal with that? Cause I know, I know in some ways you kind of just got to let people go a little bit, but in some ways you're like, I don't want you sitting on that feeder shooting raccoons when I know. Well, we definitely, we definitely, um, when a guy gets in that mode, we will, uh, and you know, that predator control stuff is all good. I mean, you know, those are all nest robbers on the turkeys and stuff, you know, and, and they cost us a lot of money on the feed and everything else. So, you know, killing those critters, I, you know, when their numbers are crazy, I don't have an issue with that, but we definitely kind of pick and choose the spots. Uh, we, we're not going to take you where you're, you know, you're hunting your buck or the buck. I think you have a chance to kill. Like, you know, here's your arrow. Don't take that quiver of 20 because I don't want you shooting all that stuff. You know, so I get in our brief or whatever guides take about like, Hey, get that guy under control because, you know, he doesn't need to shoot his two javelinas and five hogs before the deer come out. That's a problem. Do, uh, yeah. do you think that Jace is going to know we're talking about him here? Probably. He's, he's a trigger happy fella. Uh, well, Jace always comes. You know, well, I was testing this new broadhead, or I was testing this. I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude. I'm like, yeah, bro. We have the same job. I know what you're doing here. Yeah. Uh, all right, last last one, buddy. What what are the most common mistakes you see clients make that just cost them dear? Impatient. Uh, you know, forcing something that shouldn't happen. So you know, not not waiting on the actual the shot that they should take. I see a lot of guys force it in the heat of the moment. I got to get him right now because there he is, and I got to shoot. And damn it, if I'd have just let him clear that tree, I wouldn't have stuck that tree, or I wouldn't have hit that limb, or or if I'd have just took a deep breath, he dropped. He would have dropped his head. He was alert, and then he relaxed. He would have relaxed. You know, and you just you know try to see it coming together and see how it's going to happen, and just picking the place to make your shot and then sticking to that, uh, you know, and, and being patient to execute a good shot. And a lot of guys just rush it. Yeah. Just, just impatience in general. I mean, I, I know that you see that a lot down there, like, you know, water hole hunt or something when somebody's coming in through the brush, it's like, just let him get to the water, man. <laughs> it's like a bear going to a bear bait. Once he starts eating, he drops his guard and you probably got him. Like you can do whatever you want. As he approaches the bait, he's real cautious. He's looking around. He's checking everything. Same thing coming to the water. They're they're nervous. They're you know they're almost stealing food or water from whoever owns that feeder or whatever. You know they're just checking everything else out. And or they've had their butt kicked there by a bigger buck or an older buck got a hold of them or you know and you it once they drop their, if you'll just be patient they'll give you the shot that you're looking for. You know that's the thing about like feeder hunting in Texas. You know and there's corns spread all over the place. You know, it's, it's not like they're standing there eating in the clover patch. They're literally hunting and pecking and finding all this. You're going to get 50 different angles at that deer for the perfect shot. If you'll just wait a second, you know, instead of shooting and facing your hard quarter, you know, when you don't need to do that, you know, he will, he will present the angle. Just take a deep breath, look up at the sky for a second, do what you got to do. And then, you know, let him, let him do it. You get in the right place and shoot, but it's hard for a lot of guys. And again, that's just experience. Yeah. Yeah. Patience and just letting a moment breathe. And waiting for your your the right time is hard to learn. Oh yeah, yeah, it is. It's just hard to learn, Mike. This has been so much fun, man. If somebody wants to book a hunt with you, where do they look? Uh, they just go to our website soehunts.net, uh, or they can go to the savageoutdoors.tv website. Either one, and they that's literally my cell phone on there because I do all the booking. I talk to every client, um, you know, and the email comes to me, so they're not talking to my office manager or any of that. It's me. So awesome. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, man. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you having me.
That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more whitetail goodness. This has been the Wired to Hunt podcast, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for more whitetail content, be sure to check out themeateater.com slash wired. Again, that's themeateater.com slash wired to see a pile of new articles each week by Mark, myself, and a whole slew of whitetail addicts. Or head on over to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to view our weekly content that we put up. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.